Okay. Now, what was kind of going through your head when you, like the actual day you found out Vibes doors are about to close? It was a wave of emotions because, and, and several things contributed to that. One, I was literally looking at the first time in my, in my adult life, the next day I would wake up and I wouldn't have a job. Hi, I'm Alexis and welcome to First Year Project, a podcast sharing the stories behind the good, bad and integral aspects of first year experiences. That's Josen Cummings talking about when he found out he would be jobless by end of day due to Vibe, one of the nation's leading music magazines at the time, closing its doors in 2009. A day he notes as being one of the most pivotal and one of the worst days of his career. This major transition would be followed by three years of spotty employment, freelance work while sporting sweatpants, his blog UntilIGetMarried.com, and deeply reflecting over what things like happiness, love, and money really meant to him. Now the media professional is at the forefront of Bleacher Report's Snapchat Discover Channel. And right before this position, Josen was on the team that spearheaded Twitter Moments. So yeah, if you're a fan of journalism, music, and or pop culture from the early 2000s up until now, you're also probably a fan of this man's work. In this interview, we sit down and talk about handling unexpected transitions, embracing the idea of kismet, and why money is overrated. Josen, thank you so much for being on the show today. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me, Alexis. Of course, of course. So I know that your career got started at Vibe mm-hmm. 2004, I believe. 2004, yeah. And I uh, I follow you on Twitter and I remember you tweeting something about, um, as a fact checker, like mm-hmm. one of the most interesting things about the job was how like celebrities would lie about their age. Yeah. <laughs> can, yeah. can you talk a little bit about that? Well, it was just a common thing that you ran up against as a fact checker. Um, you, in 2004, being a fact checker was a little bit different. Uh, Wikipedia was still being questioned mm. as a valid source of information. I think now its credibility is a little bit stronger than it once was, but you couldn't rely on it to give you all the facts. You had to look at other sources and usually you had to make sure through three or four different sources. So if you had an artist and they were claiming that their age was a certain number, what you would do is you would go to all music guy. That was like a big source back in the day. Okay. You even sometimes would go as far as looking up records in um, LexisNexis. And, I uh, forgot about yeah. LexisNexis. Yeah, that was like a huge thing. Like it cost a lot of money to be a part of it. And oh, have, yeah, you had, had, you had yeah. to have like a subscription or yeah, something. Yeah, you had to have a, have a subscription. And so what would happen is you would eventually dig deep enough and you would find that they were born maybe two or three or four or even sometimes five years older. Or sometimes they just didn't even want to put their age but even if they said 20 something you had to make sure that they were 20 something like you had to make sure that they were in that area of of what they claimed to be so then you would find out like well they're actually like younger they're actually older than what they say they are and you would go and verify that information with the publicist and the publicist would tell you no 
it says their real age in their bio. The problem is that bio was something that the record label wrote yeah. and created. Like I know what it's like to write a couple of artists' bios, and they would just pay you, you know, eight hundred dollars or something like that to write the bio of one of their artists, and they would set the age sometimes and say that they were twenty four or twenty three, and really they were twenty eight or twenty nine. And that was always funny. So it, it, it was just something that you had to kind of deal with sometimes. And it was the littlest thing. Oftentimes, we're never doing a story about somebody's age. Yeah. But we still wanted to be right about it. And if anything, it was a good way to remind the publicist, like, we're doing our research, too. We're not just accepting what it is you say about this artist. Did you ever have to, like, fight with the publicist and say, honestly, like, like, like this is this artist's age and, like, we're going to run it with this age? Yes. So, so how did that go? Um, it, it was it was just the day in the life of a fact checker. You know, you that that was sometimes a battle that you felt you had to fight. You know, and and a lot of the times this would occur with newer artists. So if you remember those old Vibe magazines, they would have a next section. Yeah, and that next section usually had three, four artists in there, and so that's when you were oftentimes running up against it. You know, you weren't really dealing with that when you were talking about somebody that was a little bit more established, a Common or a Kanye West or um, somebody like that. Okay, okay. And then you had a major transition from Vibe. How, how long were you at Vibe? I was at Vibe for about a year and a half. Okay. Yeah. And then Vibe's doors were closing. Well, I had two stints at Vibe. So the one that you first brought up, 2004, uh-huh. was a stint in which I eventually left just to pursue another opportunity at King Magazine, which okay. eventually folded too. Not when I was there, but after I left. I didn't have anything to do with them folding, but when after I left is when they eventually folded. But um, I just needed to move up. You know, fact checking was an entry level position and Vibe wasn't giving me the opportunity to move up. So I went ahead and there was an opportunity at King Magazine to be their online editor. Mm-hmm. And I eventually took that. When I went back to Vibe in 2008 to be their online editor, I was um, there until the doors closed um, in June 2009. Okay. Now, what was kind of going through your head when you, like the actual day you found out Vibe's doors are about to close? It was a wave of emotions because... And, and several things contributed to that. One, I was literally looking at the first time in my, in my adult life, the next day I would wake up and I wouldn't have a job. Wait, and so it was, it was one of those announcements where it's like tomorrow. Yeah. At the end of the day, you all have to be gone. You all have to be gone. So for me, just processing the fact that I would not have a job for the first time in my career was uh, heavy. It was just very, very heavy. Um, The, the ironic thing that made it less, less heavy was the fact that I wasn't alone. Um, There's some truth in misery loves company. (laughs) Uh, I think that that was, 
something to this day, the people that were in that room that got that news, if I see them, if we see each other, there is a bond there because we were all with one another on what is arguably one of the worst days in our careers. Everybody in there was affected the same way that I was affected. Everybody in there was going to not have a job the next day. Everybody in there had to figure out where the, what they were going to do and how they were going to be able to live and continue to do and, and, and find another opportunity to do work. But, um, I remember that day very, very clearly. And for me, it started early in the morning. I, at the time I was transitioning into a new role at Vibe. So I started as a deputy. I started as a, um, as the online editor and I was moving into the role of being an articles editor. Mm -hmm. And I was just starting to find my groove with, um, my, my, the, the person who would be managing me, um, a gentleman by the name of Benjamin Meadows Ingram. And he and I had known each other. He had been at Vibe a long time. And I was initially nervous about working under him because as much as we had known each other, I never saw myself being that guy that he wanted to like nurture and everything. So I was kind of nervous about like being under him, feeling like I was being set up to not succeed. Oh, so you knew him and it like wasn't necessarily in a positive way for sure? Or We just didn't... We. I, I just had seen him groom other talent and I was never one of those people that he groomed. Mm. So the order to report to him came from the editor in chief, Danielle Smith. And she was like, yeah, you're going to be working under Ben. And I told her, I said, as long as I've known him, we've never really like had like conversations. Mm. So I was nervous, but when that was put upon us. We had a good conversation and I told him I was at a weird place in my life. My father had just died too. And so I was like, I'm not, I told him I was candid. I was like, look, I know that we're growing and things are transitioning right now. And on a personal level, I am in a very weird place because my father just died and I just need you to know all of that before we really start, you know, yeah. building together. And he was like, I'm happy you told me that I'm, I'm, and I want this to be a great experience for the both of us. So we were just getting into our groove and that morning I wake up and I get a text message from him. I, I had received text messages from him and they were so cryptic because they said, hey, man, um, I want you to know that you should come into the office first thing in the morning, make sure you get a good breakfast, and everything is going to be all right. Damn. So it was just like, he was hip. He it, was was like a, it was like a drunk text. <laughs> <laughs> it read like a drunk text. He said, if, if it helps, I have already cried about this, but... I will see you in the morning. We will talk then. Damn. And I was like, this is six o'clock in the morning. And all of yeah. a sudden time slows down. All of a sudden us being in the office at nine o'clock feels like it's going to take forever to get there. And so I was really walking, getting ready for work in a complete daze 
because I didn't know what was coming. But what I thought was coming was that my time was up at five. Mm. Like it didn't work out. And I was going to be told that I was let, was being let go. And I had to take a lot of deep breaths and just go into the office and get to my work. And so I started doing my work and there was this process in which we, if you came in and you had pages on your desk, you had to read them, go through them, make your changes and make your edits and then pass them on to the next team. And then you would send an email out to uh, the editorial staff that you had changed, you had passed on your pages. So I did that. And as soon as I did that, Danielle calls, Danielle Smith, she called me. And she said, Josen, don't work on any more pages. And I said, okay. Shout out to, uh, honestly, I really do love Danielle Smith. I, I don't know about her personally. We, we could do a whole other podcast Seriously. about what that woman means to me and what that woman means to the industry. To the she, culture, to for the real. Culture. She is an amazing, amazing, amazing force. She's like, super she dope. is, yeah. Um, so she said, um, Everything is done. Mm. We're done. Don't say anything to anybody. Just call your family, do whatever you need to do. I'll make that announcement at 12 o'clock, but you don't need to work on anything. Just put everything down. And um, I did call my mom immediately to let her know. But that relieved me in a weird way and that's what really? i mean when i say that the thing that made the the that feeling a little bit lighter was the fact that i wasn't about to go through it alone you see i woke up thinking that i was about to get fired that True. it was just me yeah and now i realize, like oh <laughs> we're all going down together <laughs> like it, it's about to go down for everybody <laughs> so I breathed a little bit more, uh, a a little bit more relief in that, not because I want to see other people do bad, but I didn't want to be the only one on the boat. Um, And I wasn't. Um, But needless to say, that was still that happened in 2009. We're in 2017. Like the fact that I can recall every single moment yeah and the feeling of that and when i close my eyes i can still see some faces in the room uh, when they receive the news yeah man it made me it changed my life because now whenever somebody is finds out that you know they've been let go or layoffs are happening i empathize with that in a very deep way It's a very scary, like, place to be. It's terrifying. Yeah. But I don't know if I, I I don't fear it as much as I used to. Now, how did you get through the major transition of uh, being in New York City, Mm -hmm. um, not having a job, Mm -hmm. and then trying to figure out what am I going to do next? Um. I figured everything out on the fly. I had to apply for unemployment and that helps you eat a little bit. Um, I am lucky in that I have a mother who, even though we are a very blue collar family, she will do anything. She has always done anything to help me make my dreams come true. 
So she wasn't like, oh, well, that sucks. You don't got a job. So your room is here, though. And you can move <laughs> back home until you land on your feet. She knew that I wanted to live in New York Dope. and stay in New York and that I still wanted to pursue my career. So I had her support, too, and she would support me financially if need be. Um, and then... I also just worked. <laughs> and when I say worked, of course, I mean a lot of freelance. Mm -hmm. um, and then I also figured out a way to do some work for myself. And that's not the same thing as freelancing. Yeah. So freelancing is, you know, you're working for a check, you're writing for a check. And I learned to let go of a lot of things that I think young writers suffer from, which is like chasing prestige moments and opportunities, right? And kind of looking at like certain publications and wanting to see their name there and not understanding like when you sign up to make writing your living, you have to write to live. And if you're not, if you're going to turn down opportunities because this is something that you're writing and it's strictly going to be used for B2B purposes, business to business purposes, mm -hmm. or it's going to be content that they just need, they need copy and your name isn't going to go on it. And it's not meant to really make you look good or make you look like the most literary writer. If you're a hey, more power to you, if you can say no to that check, but I wasn't in a position to say no to anything. I was literally taking anything that would pay me for my words mm -hmm. and trying to scrape together enough to make rent, to eat, socialize, whatever. Um, so that was that. And then I had this blog that I started called until I get married.com. And in a weird way, even though I wasn't getting paid to do that, it gave me this, uh, I guess, this freedom that I needed for yeah. the rest of my other writing. It gave me an opportunity to just truly write as my most authentic self and not write on deadline and not write for a check and not write within the confines of a word count or things like that. So it was a way for me to air out what I couldn't in my more professional area uh, opportunities. So you were essentially like working while you waited, whether that be for a check or for like yeah. passion wise. Yeah. Yeah. Working while uh, working while I waited, but I never really had and for better or for worse, a strategy for mm. what I was going to do next. I had a resume. I knew I was qualified and I knew I had the skills to get another job. The problem was this was 2009, right? When the great recession was in full swing. Oh and yeah. The vibe went under because of that. And so it was very hard out there to like just go on to a job board and see opportunities. There weren't that many opportunities at all. And so I just had to be patient and do a lot of praying. And when I look back on that time, there were a good three years of me of what I call inconsistent employment. So I was not always unemployed. There were other opportunities, but 
I also had a blog and I also like cared about that deeply and was trying to figure out how can I make this successful in a way that actually pays me too. Sometimes managing that blog and managing like time at, uh, you know, as an employee at a company, those two things didn't always get along. And so there were, there were times there were jobs that I quit. There were jobs that I was just told you're not a good fit and they were right. Like I wasn't focused. I wasn't there. Um, so there was a good three years of me just kind of making a whole lot of mistakes. What was the hardest part of like the three years of unemployment slash inconsistent employment? Um, the hardest part was money and not having any and not really having a lot and just being learning how to cope with that and live with that and figuring out ways to not let that define me and not measure my success by what was in my bank account. Cause if I did that, then I would have probably looked at myself more as a failure than a success. And dealing with the consequences of a lot of those mistakes, you know, getting your debit card rejected and, you know, calling up my mom for if she could float me another, you know, sum of money and, um, not being able to do things that I wanted to do, having to, uh, you know, tell everybody no, and then having the courage enough to tell them, like, just so we're clear, I just don't have the funds to do this. And, and letting them float me if they really wanted me to come along. Uh, th- those things were difficult for me to deal with. It was all mental. It was all mental. Getting up in the morning sometimes. Really understanding the feelings that I had were not to be taken lightly. That there, there's one day that I remember and the, the artist's I, I, the thing that I remember the most is the pants that I was wearing, which were these Nike track, uh, like tracksuit pants. Mm-hmm. Um, because working from home, why do you even need to get dressed, right? <laughs> and so oftentimes I would just walk around with these pants on and just like do that. And I wouldn't change until I absolutely had to. Well, there was one day where I literally got up in the morning, put those pants on, and they stayed on me all day. Like 8 o'clock at night, I'm still wearing them. I had no reason to get out of the house. Nobody was asking me to get out of the house. No job to really do. Um, and I, And it was such a dark feeling that I realized... I could be depressed. Like I could be suffering from mild depression and knowing how alone I was, how, you know, outside of my mom, maybe checking on me, mm-hmm. nobody was checking on me and anything that would have happened to me that day could have never been known by anybody. It was a very dark, very lonely feeling. And so at that, after that, yeah. like I realized like I have to be proactive about my happiness. If, if I don't do anything to make myself happy, nobody is. Nobody else ha- who wakes up in the morning 
it, it's nobody else's job to make me happy. That's dope. Like that's yeah. not what they're doing. So what do I, I have to do it. And so learning those things was probably like the most difficult thing. I mean, not being able to pay your rent sucks. Right. But like, it's kind of one of those things where uh, you just kind of deal. Yeah. Like you, you, you figure out a way to get the funds eventually and you deal with it. Right. But these sorts of things, these sorts of downtimes in people's lives affect everybody differently. And so learning how it affected me was the most difficult part. Now, for those who haven't read the blog yet, can you just give like a brief, brief synopsis of what it's about? So the first thing I should say about until I get married.com is it's still up. Yeah. It, it still exists. I just, I'm, uh, I'm going to update it. I promise. Cause I'm not married yet. And that's the whole thing. Right? <laughs> so, um, but I started it in 2009 and the intention was to be a, the most honest I could be about what it was to be a modern day bachelor. Um, there were a lot of blogs that were happening around the time, single black male, naked with socks and mm-hmm. very smart brothers, yeah. um, which is still very active. Damon and Panama have done a very good job of, you know, growing very smart brothers. And the other two were pivotal as well, because this was also a time when like it just seemed that. The thing that everybody was talking about was relationships, especially black relationships, Mm -hmm. Um, black love and dating and things like that. So um, what happened was I was reading these blogs and at the time, to be perfectly honest, I just felt like none of them were really keeping it as real as they could. They were all like kind of navel gazing and I, I felt like they were going after like low hanging fruit. Mm. Everybody was telling you either what men do or what women do. And nobody was talking about what they do, like who they are. It was like very detached. Yeah, yeah it was yeah. all very detached. Like they were almost trying to put it into third person. So I wanted to put it into first person because I was... I was like, nobody's going to be vulnerable here. I'll be, I'll be vulnerable. I'll, I'll let you know exactly what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling. I won't sugarcoat it. And I will give you that real. And I found that that really resonated. Mm-hmm. You know, if, 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 if there was something about dating that pissed me off, I would write about that. And I wouldn't care whether or not I was wrong, right, right or wrong. If there was something about being in love that, or dating that I really enjoyed, I would write about that. If it was something that in which I was heartbroken or upset because of uh, love lost or um, I hadn't gotten over somebody, I would write about that. I, I didn't care. I didn't care how it made me look. And so that level of vulnerability allowed me to really um, get an audience because they knew that I would be as honest as I could be. And so... Yeah, it was it it never evolved into something more. It was just like this thing that I did and I updated it 5 days a week. I think that's helped helped it grow like Heck yeah. in the first 2 years people could always rely on this content and I was very committed to it. That's dope. Now, one of my favorite pieces that you wrote because it personally resonated with me in a certain way is uh, the 11 lessons learned after living in NYC for 11 years. So you put that out 2015. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of my favorite parts of that piece is where you write 
I'm not a New Yorker, but New York City has become home. And that is a very bittersweet thing for me to say. Yeah. So why exactly was that bittersweet after 11 years? Because I'm very proud to be from California. I'm very proud to be from somewhere else. But New York has shaped who I am. And the longer I live here, the more I become like somebody who when people meet me, they don't pick up that I may be from somewhere else. Like yeah. People think I'm from New York. That's crazy. And and I don't want to move back. <laughs> like I don't I'm not in a never? rush to move back to California. Um I would never say never, but twelve years going on thirteen years here now, um, and eleven years at that time, like this city fits me like a glove. Mm. And I love it here. I absolutely love it here. But you never want to be so far removed from where you come from that, you know, people can't sense that about you. And yeah. I've always thought that being from, I, I still identify as a very small, uh, as a small town guy. Like that's who I am. That's how I grew up. I grew up in a small city, small town in California. Mm -hmm. Like I don't come from the, like, San Francisco, Oakland, places with name, brand recognition. Um, I come from a little city that I always have to explain what other big cities are close to it. Yeah. Um, but being in New York and kind of like going out into the world and now when I come home, home is New York. Makes, it's, it feels a little funny. It, it, it does, but it, it feels funny in a good way. I'm very proud to have figured out a way to make it here. What were your uh, early years like in New York City? My early years in New York City were very carefree. I always describe like the first two years here as being, a, I felt like a cast member of Living Single. So I had a homie that was uh, <laughs> like, me and my homie were like Kyle and Overton. Got like it. He, I had my place. He had a place in, um, he had a place in Brooklyn mm -hmm. and we had these three homegirls and we would go to their place and we just kick it all the time. Like just. That is Living Single. Like, like we would just, would sometimes like I would be like, cause I lived up town yeah and they lived in brooklyn and you know that you know that whole thing like yeah, how far apart those sure. things are there would be times where i would just i wouldn't even be subtle about it i'd pack a bag i'd be like i'm, I'm sleeping saying. i'm sleeping in somebody in somebody's <laughs> crib um it was all very very innocent you know i had a had a couple of girlfriends in these early years and it, it, like it was the, so carefree it was so, I always say, like, if you don't go to grad school, those first two, three years, four years after college are so lit. Like sweet spot. They're, that's, sweet that's, spot. That's, oh, yeah. That is where, like, expectations on you are very low yep. from society's standards. Uh -huh. You've, coming off the heels of a major accomplishment and graduating from college, you got your first job. You're starting you're feeling, to make, you're feeling a little good. You're feeling good. And... <laughs> Oh my God. That, so, so those, those years were absolutely fantastic. I think the other thing about living in New York and just moving here as I had no concept of like distance. So this whole city was my, uh, like, where are you at Brooklyn? I'll just get on the there. train and get there. And it didn't even matter that it would take an hour and a half, but I just go there and, yeah. and, and kick it. And, um, really like, you know, kind of learning how to, navigate the city and um everything was new and i love that i i absolutely love that and i sometimes wish like 
I could go back to that time and just relive that time again because it was so fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you're transitioning from um, more like written print types Mm -hmm. of of work. Mm -hmm. Now, what led to the transition from that type of work to Twitter? So I consider myself when people ask me like, what how do I describe what I do for a living, which I realize you're not asking me, but the way I would ask, the way I would answer this question is I would, I would say now that I'm a media professional, like I work in the media business and Mm -hmm. I've always worked in the media business, but I've just taken on like different kind of roles. Right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, what sparked my interest in Twitter was the fact that there was this buzz going on about this new thing that they were working on called at the time lightning. And now I'm so glad they changed it to moments. Yeah. And now, and now it's called moments. And so little things that I had picked up on that I was reading about made it sound like it would be a good fit for me. The, the, the biggest thing being they were looking for journalists to Mm. help create this new tool that they were going to add to Twitter. So I was like, uh, there's two things I know is journalism and Twitter. So I'm going for it. Um, Had a couple of people that I knew that worked there um, and reached out to them, said, hey, I know they're hiring for this team and I really want to be on it. Like I am the candidate that they are looking for as far as editorial curators and what this is. I know how to do this. I have news judgment and I know Twitter. Mm -hmm. And if they're building a new thing, I really, really want to be a part of it because I felt like I can make an impact on the platform in a way that benefited a community that I know never felt like Twitter cared about them, which is black Twitter. Yep. So, I was going to bring like I was coming with the whole like mindset of being the guy that would represent having a seat at that table. Mm -hmm. And so luckily the people that interviewed me felt the same way about me saw my, um, you know, they just thought that I was a good fit. And so I went there to me. Twitter is a platform, a news platform as much as, any other platform that I work, absolutely, it, it, I, I get it, my news from Twitter. Yeah, so to so I didn't look at it like it was going to be very different than mm. any other opportunity that would have been out there. And to me, it was also probably one of the most progressive opportunities in media because as an industry, everybody is trying to figure out how to service the public mm-hmm. with not only the tools of social media, but through their own tools. Innovation is probably the most important thing to journalism right now. The ability to be able to innovate, the ability to find new ways to inform and tell stories. Like there, there, there is no initiative that is more important than figuring, uh, no mission that is more important in journal in um in media than that and so i just was like yeah let me go here and it was a fantastic experience i loved working at twitter i loved everything about it it was great it was really really great now 
what do you think like the company's like biggest responsibility is going to be in like the next four years, given the political climate? I have like, or even like, is there a responsibility? Yeah, there, there is, there is. I think their biggest responsibility is going to be embracing themselves as a news media company, which is something that they've articulated recently. Like they are a news service, you know, a, a, a media, a news service company. You know what I'm saying? And the thing about Twitter is they're very, very deliberate about all the ways that they describe who they are and mm. what they do. Every single thing that Twitter says about itself, about what it is, has been thought about and like fleshed out and workshopped and like talked about and discussed and met about. So um, they are a new service company and I think their biggest responsibility is going to be to embrace that. And how they embrace that, I don't know. There's a lot of different ways and a lot of smart people there that can figure that out. But if they don't, if they strictly try to be this social media company, they are going to lose their, their, their credibility. And if people cannot rely on you to give them credible news and information, then they are going to leave you just like they would leave any other place person that would lie to them mm -hmm. or be willing to lie to them. Um, so it's going to be on them to figure out a way to gain that trust and be responsible for the people that are on the platform. Uh I don't know how they do that. I think they also need to take a better look at how their community is reacting to the biggest user, which is Donald Trump. And I say biggest in the sense that like, you know, all eyes are on him. Yeah. All eyes are on him. And, and, and so he's taken over Twitter in a way that I don't think Twitter realizes. And I don't know if they want to control it, but they should. <laughs> They should figure out a way to engage with him and yeah. talk to him and be like, look, man, you it's a problem. Like you're you're really ruining this thing. You're and you're you're hurting yourself in the process. So here's hoping they figure out a way to do that. But it, it, it's going to have to be done. Mm -hmm. Now, Twitter, uh, I read another piece of yours. I'm not broke anymore and I'm terrified. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So this is actually my, my absolute favorite. Thank you. And um, so I know that Twitter was like kind of like the first row where you were like making some money. money. Yeah, yeah. Fair to say. Mm -hmm. um, and there was one line that I really liked that said I had more money to spend, but I didn't like spending it which may sound very responsible of me, but but the truth, my reticence was less about frugality and more about fear and guilt. Yeah. So like, what did you fear, what did you feel guilty about? That I was finally making money. And the idea that you don't have money to save, you don't make enough money to save, allows you to be a little bit irresponsible. It's weird, but it's like, I got the money that I got and I ain't got no room to like, if I, why would I save this money? It exempts I, you. Yeah, yeah. It kind of exempts you. It's like, you know, nobody would blame you if you, if you spent 
the five dollars that you have in your pocket. Yep. But if you spent the hundred dollars that you have in your pocket, people are gonna look at you like, did you really have to spend that? <laughs> like, there's some questionable purchases that you've probably made with that hundred dollars. So I would just be like, now that I'm making more money, I have to I have to save something. <coughs> Excuse me. I have to save something now that I'm making more money and I'd feel bad sometimes when I would blow through the new money that I was making, you know? Yeah. Um, I would feel bad sometimes for enjoying it just because I could didn't mean that I should. And so every now and then I'd be like, what are you doing? You you got the money to save. Why aren't you putting it away? Mm -hmm. Um, But you know, I'd make these big purchases that I could make. I I, I bought a coat. I, I bought shoes. I bought all these things that I could never afford. And it sometimes made me feel, to be honest, like a child. Mm. Like, oh, I could buy this and I could buy that. Like, I didn't feel I didn't feel great at, uh, great about it, but. So I so what I would do is I would be like, man, I, you deserve it. You deserve it. You worked hard for this, not just in the two weeks to get the check, but your whole entire career, like the buildup, the buildup and yeah. everything like that. So, you know, I, I, I but that's what I regretted. And, and what I feared is that money being taken away from me um, by other people and just not having a job or something like that. Is that still a fear? Um, well, I think the fear is now that I would have to settle for less money. That's a very real fear. You know, no money, no money is probably a consequence of something that is bigger than me. Something that I could not control, right? Less money. What, what did I do to, to deserve less? What, what did I do to deserve like? To not deserve more, mm-hmm. like you got to be uh, like uh, I, I've I've worked to earn the value that I have set for myself. So if you guys don't think that I'm that valuable, like something's wrong with you, and something is wrong with me. So uh, less money is more is, is something I fear more than no money. No money, you know. That 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 could be attributed to a bunch of things that I probably couldn't control. Less money, though, like you know, lack of negotiation skills on my part, um, settling, you know, things like that. I, that's what I fear. You know, was that role like the first time you had really thought, I guess, more in depth about how you view money? No, being broke will give you some perspective on how sure you does. view money too. Um, no, it, 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 it didn't. I, I just, I think what I realized though is um, not, is, is that having money is underrated. How so? People will tell you that money isn't everything. Like, it's the Kanye line, right? Yeah. Like, money isn't everything, but not having it is. Like, <laughs> having money 
really does free your mind up and nobody emphasizes that. The best way that I've seen it emphasized, to be honest with you, is like uh, there was these um, New York State lottery campaigns that came out a couple of years ago and they would air on television. Mm -hmm. And there's this one of a... um, woman who's just kind of like walking along this beautiful garden and she is and they do a voiceover of her and she's like why are round pizzas put in square boxes hmm and then it and then up on the screen it flashes imagine what you would have to think what you could think about if you didn't have to think about money (laughs) true and that like epitomizes to me like the best thing about being able to have money is that now you can start thinking about other things. Mm-hmm. You could start thinking about more important things. Yeah, money isn't everything, but it's very hard when you don't have any to think about anything else out there. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. the things that I'm able to do with money that go beyond just making like, you know, buying sneakers and clothes and everything like that are things like um I in that piece that you brought up, like I bought a ticket to mm. be there for my boy at his dad's funeral. And I, I, I was able to go home and surprise my mom. And I'm, I'm donating to the ACLU and Planned Parenthood. I just put myself on a monthly like donation program. Like, I was never able to do that. Yeah. Ever. And being able to do those things and knowing that the way they're going to hit my pocket won't be so severe that I won't be able to eat for two days is wonderful fantastic so so that's why I say it's underrated like people don't talk about that enough like it's always about being able to pay the bills and being able to pay the bills is great but you can pay the bills if you're poor yeah you can pay the bills if you like at the at the very least you could pay your bills like you're gonna have the money to do that you're gonna find a way to go ahead and do that you're gonna find a way to go ahead and get money to eat but like being able to show up in full um without much sacrifice mm-hmm. like that's man that's so undervalued by people like that's so just that's a wonderful feeling now you transitioned from Twitter to Bleacher Report. Mm-hmm. So how did that even come about? Um, I was very fortunate. I think the one thing about being at Bleacher Report is it's a testament to all the work that I've done in my career to establish a great network for myself. Because the way that the opportunity came to me is um, Jermaine Spradley, uh, who I've known tangentially, like through we've known a lot of we have a lot of mutual friends. Got it. Um he knew about my work and we met a few times, but we never met. We always met socially. He always respected my work or at least respected it enough to feel like I could be of great value to Bleacher Report and um, offered me a job. And that's <laughs> that's what you want. That's the goal. Like, that's the goal. Like for me, success is fluid. And um, 
discovering different ways that my work has paid off Mm -hmm. has always been like one of the most rewarding things that I can experience and feel. And so just like being in a position where like they offered me an opportunity and knowing that I didn't have to say yes, I wasn't desperate. I was very, very happy at Twitter was also a great feeling. Mm Mm-hmm. Knowing, like, you know, there was a little, like, I, I negotiated in a, in a very strong way because I could. It's the best position to be it's in. It's the best position to be in. And so, um, yeah. But the other thing about it, and th- this can't be stressed enough, like when I say, uh, once again, I'm a media professional, like Bleacher Report, sports media company, um, focused on sports, obviously, just having that feather in my cap is great, but also I'm working on their Snapchat Discover Discover channel. Yeah. This is yet another job in which when I graduated from Howard in 2004, this job didn't exist. Wasn't even like in in, in like... Wasn't even thought. a thing. Yeah. And that's been my job, this job, that's been my last job yeah. at Twitter. These things did not exist. And so for me, I am most proud of my ability to move along with everything that the ind- uh, the way the industry is moving. Mm-hmm. My, uh, my, my openness to different kinds of storytelling and different kinds of ways to serve up content has um, worked out well for me. And so I'm very proud of that. Um, You know, there's no like singular kind of recognition or anything like that. I'm just proud to be working in an, in a industry that is never not changing. Always changing. Always, always changing. Yeah. Now, the other day you tweeted something that I really rocked with. Okay. So, so I'm in my 20s. Yes. Um, which I feel like is known. Like, I look like a baby. Yeah. Generally. Yes. But anyways. Yes, you do. The tweet. She looks like a child. <laughs> you are. So. so I'm 26. Like, as I would tell my mom, I'm a grown woman. But yeah, I'm in my 20s. And I, I embrace that. Mm-hmm. I'm okay with that. Uh, the tweet was, your 20s are a time to experience as many feelings as possible. Yeah. So, like, what what even sparked that message? Because, uh, <laughs> what, what sparked that message? Um, there, there was actually something that was going on with somebody uh, who basically is going through a rough time in their 30s. Mm. And I was like, that's because... You fought off in your 20s like any kind of thing that would make you feel something emotional or deep. Like you swore that your 20s were like all about being young. And being young is not about avoiding feelings. And it is not about trying to avoid difficult moments. And nothing is more difficult than navigating love and relationships. And if you think you're too young for a relationship and you think you're too young to fall in love, what's going to happen is when you feel like you're finally of age in your 30s, you're going to be going through it like a child. You're going to be going through it like you are in your 20s because you never experienced, you never got the training. 
I'm shaking so, my head and vigorously. So, you're, yes. so you're, you're 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 regressing. It's it's arrested development. And there is no better time in your life in your 20s than in your 20s, a decade, to just go through it all. And for me, I was saying that also because I know what that's like. I lived with a woman for the first time and we didn't work out. And that was a significant breakup. I lost my father. I lost a good friend of mine from college in a car accident. I had, I, I became an uncle. Like my, my, my sister had a baby. Um, my mom got married. Like I walked her down the aisle. Like wow. the, the, these were things that like I was experienced. I graduated from college. I got my first job. I got my first apartment, like everything, all these different moments were giving me an opportunity to feel things that I had never felt before. And the thing about being in your twenties is like when you feel them, they're intense because you've never felt them before. And so sometimes what happens is people want to close themselves off from it, but you, you're not going to be able to maintain that forever because what you realize is that life doesn't stop when you're 30 life continues. And so now you're looking at what you've kind of like, experienced and you're thinking, man, I really shut myself out from some opportunities. So let me go into my thirties, like more open, right? Okay, great. Now you're getting hit with new feelings. And I'm, I'm just at a point. I'm 35 now. Um, I'm at a point where like a lot of what I've gone through in my thirties is just easier because I did it before. It's familiar to me. And I don't worry anymore about like things as I don't worry as much about things. You know what I'm saying? Like my worries now in my thirties are new worries. They're not the worries that I had in my twenties. So that's what I mean. Like don't fight it in your twenties. If you got the room, if you got the time, then do it, you know, like go through it all. Thanks so much for tuning into First Year Project. For episodes, visuals, and releases, make sure to check out firstyearproject.com or our social media accounts at firstyearprj. Once again, firstyearprj. P as in Paul, R as in Ryan. Jay as in John. The past couple of episodes, we've actually hosted and had um, some really cool chats around um, some questions that like involved episodes or like takeaways. So one of them was actually like, well, I think one of the craziest things that your boss has ever like told you. And another question was around like, how do you deal with stress? So definitely make sure to check us out on social media and be a part of the conversation. The end of this week, we have a very special release coming out. So definitely make sure to be on the lookout for that. Today's background music is My Night by Chantel Acta. Once again, Chantel Acta, C-H-A-N-T-A-L, and Acta is spelled A-C-D-A. You can find her work on SoundCloud.com. Editing, production, and hosting were all done by myself. Follow First Year Project on Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat at First Year PRJ. You can follow myself across the same social media platforms at underscore Alexis Claytor. 
Fresh Air Project also has a Facebook page. You can find the page on Facebook at First Year Project. Thanks so much again, y'all. Have a dope week.